One, if you have your Bibles, we are in Isaiah chapter 40 tonight. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stephen will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. A couple things to pray for as you're turning there. Um, I've not heard uh, how Lloyd is doing, but Beverly and Lloyd, Lloyd um, had some AFib going on with his heart and some other things and he was in the hospital on Sunday and so we need to be praying for him. And then also... Um, if those of you that don't know, uh, Majors has been a part of our church for a number of years. His mom uh, passed away on Sunday, on Mother's Day. There was a tragic tractor accident, and she was killed. And so uh, we just need to be praying for him and, and the family. And uh, they're from Laos, and so they have, I mean, it's a huge family and a huge, like a four-day funeral they're going to have, and, and uh, it's a big deal. And so it's just, uh, I know he's struggling a little bit with this, and so um Let's pray for him and Lloyd, and then we'll also pray for the studies we begin. Father, we thank you for tonight and this opportunity to gather together, Lord, and to be in this place where your church can come together and unite in prayer, Lord, for a specific reason and specific purpose. And and we do want to lift up majors to you, Lord, and uh, we know that he is grieving from the loss of his mom. Lord, we know she's not lost. She's right with you, Lord, and, and your word said there's joy forevermore in your presence, and so she is just in this joyous place, Lord, of, of just peace and, and your love and glory. But down here, Lord, I know Majors is hurting. I know his, his dad's hurting as well. And we just pray for uh, that hurt, Lord, that you would bring comfort to them, that, uh, Lord, you give opportunities for Majors to share with those that will be coming out for this uh, four-day funeral, Lord, that don't know you, that he would be able to point uh, towards his mom and, and uh, her relationship that she has with you, Lord God, and and uh, be able to lead uh, family and friends into that place of knowing you and loving you. And so we pray for major strength in him, we pray. Father, we want to lift up Lloyd to you as well. And Lord, I'm not sure how he's doing at this point. But we just pray for your healing touch upon him. And uh, Lord, just get his heart beating what needs to be done, Lord. And his body healed up so he can be back uh, in, in fellowship with us, Lord. And uh, just pray for Beverly as well, that you strengthen her as, as Lloyd is uh, is in the hospital, Lord. So... Just thank you for that, Lord. We uh, pray that you would bless now our time as we get into your word. What an exciting chapter to look at this evening, Lord. So I pray, Father, that you would just uh, give us receptive hearts all to receive all that you have for us. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40 is a great chapter because we're really at a turning point in the book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 39, we see the sovereign Lord sitting on his throne of judgment. Yet in chapter 40 through 66, we see the Lord as Savior hanging on a tree. In chapters 1 through 39, we saw the the law of God proclaimed. In chapters 40 through 66, we see the love of God portrayed. Chapters 1 through 39, we see the burden of the Lord. Chapter 40 through chapter 66, we see see the blessings of the Lord. And as a result, we'll see that there's more to God's character than just judgment. He's full of mercy and he's full of of grace and and eager to pour out his love upon his people. That's why when we start chapter 40, you'll understand why, excuse me, that some claim, well, there must have been two Isaiahs that, that, that wrote the book of Isaiah because there's such a huge contrast in this division here. But listen, we have it on very good authority that was only one Isaiah who wrote this. Uh, because the one who told us so has never been wrong, and that's God himself. We have God's word on it. 
We, we spoke about this when we, when we started the studies. In the Gospel of John in chapter 12, verse 37 through 41, John quotes two different verses from the book of Isaiah. He attributes one of them to chapter 53 and another of them to chapter uh, 6, but both to the same man. So as I said before, if you read in some book that someone says that there's a different named Isaiah, a guy named Isaiah who wrote chapters 40 through 66, throw that book in the garbage, you don't need it. And uh, certainly don't believe everything you read on Wikipedia because they say it too, and, and uh, they say two different Isaiahs. So I wouldn't say take God's word over Wikipedia any day. Now, chapter 40 is written before the Babylonians took the Jews into Jerusalem into the captivity, but it's predictive on what their life would be like after it's all over. After they've been judged for their sin, it was meant to encourage them and comfort them and give them hope. Much like today when we look around our world and we see the wickedness and the sinfulness, but the Lord through His Word gives us glimpses of heaven to encourage us and to give us hope and to comfort us. And so this was written to bring comfort and encouragement. Also within this chapter, we see the prophecy of John the Baptist in pointing people to Jesus. So with that, look at verses 1 through through, uh, 3. He says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for he has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So we begin with words of comfort. Now the immediate fulfillment of that, again, pointed to the time that God would comfort his people after having to discipline them for their sin, for their idolatry, by letting them be brought into the captivity by the Babylonians. The Lord instructs Isaiah, comfort my people. He says, I've had to discipline them. I've had to bring judgment to them, but now I want to bless them. You know, it's the same pattern that the Lord gives us as earthly parents. You know, sometimes we have to deal with our kids with discipline and rather severely, but it should always be followed by the second section here. You know, after the conviction, after the correction, we need the comfort and bring the comfort to them. But the future fulfillment would be the coming of Jesus Christ, that that man's war with God is over through what Jesus Christ would do upon the cross. He bridged the gap between sinful man and a holy God. Our sins are forgiven. Our iniquity is pardoned. And then verse 3 again, he says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. All four writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, uh, quote this verse as applying to John the Baptist. And so since it appears four times in the New Testament, I'm not going to argue about that. I say it refers to John the Baptist. But even more than that, John himself referred to it. Remember when the, Jews, uh, when the Jews sent the Levites and the priests to, to ask John who he was, if he was the Messiah, and he says, I'm not the Christ. Then they said, well, who are you? And it says in, in John 1, 22, 23, he says, who are you that we may give an answer to, to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as a prophet Isaiah said. And so he, he's quoting here, chapter 40 of Isaiah, that he's the guy, that the one that's saying, make straight for the coming of the Lord. That was John's, John's message. Get right, get ready, because the Lord is coming. What a comfort that is. That's why you can go back to verse 1 and he says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God, because this also speaks of the Lord's first coming. Now when you think about it, when it says comfort, yes, comfort my people, that really is a command to be like him, because he is a comforter. 
The Father is described as the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Jesus is the comforter and promised to the disciples in John 14, 6, I will pray the Father and He shall give you another comforter that He may abide with you forever. So God is just commanding us to do what He does, comfort His people. Now what is comfort? Well, the Hebrew word is nakam. It means to console, to be sorry, to have compassion. And the reason we're instructed to do that is because there are so many people today that are in need of comfort. They're not getting it. I think we see it over in the, in, in the Old Testament. I think of David who wrote Psalm 69.20. He says, Reproach has broken my heart and I'm full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Jeremiah, he was in the same place and who said in Lamentations 1.16, For these things I weep, my eyes run down with water, because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. How difficult to be in need of comfort and not have anyone around to bring that comfort, to, to offer that comfort to you. The world is full of hurting and comfortless hearts, even perhaps people in our fellowship this evening. Joseph Parker, noted preacher of the City Temple in London, said, Preach to the suffering and you'll never lack a congregation. There is a broken heart in every pew. You see, there's a lot of people in the world who distribute discomfort, but how many really bring comfort? Now, here's the wonderful thing. Jesus promised in, in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, how will they be comforted? Well, oftentimes, it's to ordinary people like you and me, you know, who, who obeys His command to comfort one another. But how do you do that? Well, the Bible gives us plenty of direction for that, too. Oftentimes, some people just need to hear some good news. You know, maybe you're hearing bad news over and over again. And just one little speck of good news can just bring a lot of comfort. I think about Paul. He was distressed and afflicted and suffering in all sorts of ways. But he found comfort from a simple good report. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6-8. He says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have a good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we are comforted concerning you by your faith, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. We are comforted, he says. You brought us good news and that comforted us. Paul needed to hear some good news. Totally unrelated to his afflictions, but it lifted up his soul and restored his soul. You know, love also gives comfort. Remember Isaac, he was grieving terribly over the death of his mother. But then Rebekah came and they fell in love. And the Bible says in Genesis 24, verse 67, he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Again, totally unrelated to the source of his sorrow, but the simple act of love restored his soul. It brought him comfort. Yet I find the best comfort that we can see, we receive is, is when we dig into the Word of God. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 49 and 50. He tells us, Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. Man, when I'm down in the dumps, and all it takes is for someone to remind me a, a simple verse, a word from the Lord in His Word. It refreshes my soul. It restores my soul, as the psalmist says. It gives me hope. I mean, think of all the great promises you can minister to people who are discouraged and depressed. How about this one? Jesus is coming back at any moment to snatch us out of this miserable world. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that should bring us comfort. 
In fact, that's what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18. It says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And if you're thinking that you're the one who needs comfort today, you may be. But God is there to bring comfort. Don't forget how we started out. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are our comforters first and foremost. If you don't have anyone to turn to you, you can turn to the Lord and He will bring comfort in your life. But also we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Don't you love that? God takes us through those trials and He comforts us and He gives us that peace so that when someone else that we know goes through that same trial, we're able to come alongside of Him and go, man, I know what you're going through. And I know it's tough. And this is how God ministered to me and I know God can minister to you the same way. And you just bring that comfort, that word of peace in that person's life. Well, back to Isaiah chapter 4. Look at verse 4. We read, Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. As they say, when the Lord comes, I mean, God's going to smooth things out. He's going to fill the valleys and bring down the hills. He's going to straighten the crooked paths and smooth things out. Now, you know, our highway system seeks to do that. You know, I, I mean, if you go down to Branson and you've seen that they've, I mean, I remember when they first, we first moved out, it was just a two-lane road to get down to Branson. And, but then they blasted the rocks and they blasted the roads and they built bridges and now they got at least four lanes going down, two on each side to make it easier to get to our destination. But for God, you know, it, 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 there are no mountains too high for Him. You know, there, there are no valleys too, too low for Him. You know, I, I mean, he, he can make the, the path straight. You know, I guess we could sing with the Supremes. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valleys low enough. Ain't no river not wide enough to keep me from loving you. But you see, God has called each one of us to be that, that one in our wilderness, proclaiming the Lord and, and the love that He has for us. To proclaim that the Lord wants to tear down those mountains of sin in our lives and makes our paths straight. Look at verse 5. He says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, the voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. There are so many great verses in this chapter to put to memory. And and verse 8 is absolutely one of them. Here Isaiah says that all flesh, men, women, children, we're all like grass, like a flower in the field. God's created us beautifully. Beautiful is his creation. But we're not going to last James tells us the same things in James 4.14, whereas you, you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. One of my favorite lines from a movie is, is life is just a blink. You know, just, just a blink and then, then it's gone. Jesus said in Luke 12.28, If then God so clothes the grass which today is a field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Speaking of the, of the brevity of life and the frailty of life, like a flower, it blossoms forth, then it fades away. That's what it's all about. We, you know, we're here uh, for time and then we pass it on. But, but there is something that endures forever, he says. It's the word of the Lord. 
Jesus put it this way in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Don't you just love that? Long after we're in eternity, God's word is still going to be there. Generations will come, generations will go, but God's word lasts right on through from one generation to the next. Now the great thing is that the word of God stands forever, promises us that God will never leave us, never forsake us, and is coming back for us. I mean, it's his word. It's in his word. So because of that, it's going to stand forever. Then, then, then we can be 100% assured that what he says is going to come to pass. So verse 9, he goes on. Oh, Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up to the high mountains, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. In other words, you who like to bring good news, man, have I got some good news for you. Man, get up on the highest mountain you can. Proclaim the good news. Behold your God. He's coming. Listen, we've been called to do the same thing. To proclaim the good news. Jesus is coming back. Share the good news with others. Get it upon the mountaintops. Sadly, for some Christians today, it seems as though the thought of proclaiming Jesus' return is a bad thing. They kind of want to keep it quiet. They don't really want to talk about the Lord's return. Or for some reason, they think that talking about, about the Lord's return is going to turn people away from the Lord. And so they want to stay away from that subject altogether. Listen, that could be nothing further from the truth. 1 Corinthians 1.7 says, So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to eagerly be looking for the return of the Lord. I don't know how you can eagerly wait if you never want to talk about it or teach about it or look about it. I mean, how is that? Here Isaiah is saying, shout it from the mountaintop. Share the good news with others. Shout it aloud. Oftentimes, Christians are very good at talking among themselves, ourselves about the good news of the gospel. But once we get out of the church building and face the unbelieving, even antagonistic world, it's a, it's a different story. But again, that's why we're given the Holy Spirit to not only comfort us, to empower us to preach the good news in the highways and the byways and the mountaintops and the valleys to reach people, even in the guttermost, as has been said. Isaiah goes on, look at verse 10. (coughs) Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Now Isaiah as he generally does, he draws together the first and second comings of Christ. This first looks forward to his second coming. Uh, actually, you know, the gospel includes both the first and the second comings of Christ. But he goes on, look at verse 11, speaking of his first coming. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Like I said, there's so many great verses in Isaiah chapter 40. How many remember verse 11 as an old praise song? Did anybody... Yeah, I knew a few of us will remember that. It was a great old praise song we used to sing many years ago. But but I love the picture here of our Lord. I mean, after reading of 39 chapters of Isaiah uh, talking about the judge, the king who will bring judgment. Here we read of this loving shepherd who gently and lovingly leads those who are his. It really is the theme of, of Psalm 23 and John 10. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me delight down in, in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And then John 10, 11 and 12, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he's, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, 
sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Listen, don't mistake the, the, the shepherds you see in the Bible storybooks, you know, the kids, you know, as being true shepherds. You know, they got the little nice little robe on and maybe a little hook thing. And, and I, I mean, shepherds were, were, I mean, they were tough, tough dudes. I mean, they were leaders. They were risk takers. I mean, their, their main focus was protecting the sheep, keeping them safe, making sure they were, they were fed. I mean, David, man, he was an expert with a slingshot. We know that. A true shepherd is, 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 not going to be like a hireling who flees at the first sign of danger. See here in verse 11, Isaiah is predicting beautifully the life of Jesus on this earth. How a good shepherd will provide for his sheep, protect them from harm, use his rod to chase off the enemy and staff to lift them out of dangerous places they get themselves into. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. Actually, the, the, the entire work of a shepherd is all about feeding the flock and protecting the flock. I love that it says he gathers and carries the, the, the young lambs recently born. In other, other words, they're, they're the weakest of, of the flock. You know, for those of you that have children, when they're babies, man, you respond when they cry at night. You may roll over once or twice, but you'll get up and you'll go see what's going on. And you pick them up and you'll hold them in your arms and you, and you tight to your chest. And, Shh, you know, everything's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. And you, maybe you have to go in the car and drive around the block a couple times and go back to sleep and but once they're calmed down, that fear is gone. That's our shepherd. Notice what Isaiah says, though, of our good shepherd, verse 11. He says, he gently leads those who are with young. He not only takes care of the young, he gently leads those that are with young. I mean, listen, for those of you parents with young kids, man, you're not alone. Man, we have to deal with all the unknowns in our kids' lives. It's nice to know that we have a shepherd that, that knows all and is gently leading us and helping us deal with those that are young. We can take it a step further. Uh, those who are young in the faith. The Lord comes alongside those young in the faith and gently leads them in the path of righteousness. How does he do that? Well, because we have a, serve a big God, a very, very big God. How big? Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. So here we're talking about how big our God is. And you think about the great oceans of the earth, the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Antarctic, the Arctic, the Indian. I mean, he measured them all just in the, in the hollow of his hand. That's a pretty big God. Remember uh, last year when we flew over the Pacific towards Hawaii, and we'd see the water just going on and on and on, and, and if there's no end in sight. That's a big God that, that He can hold all the water in their hands, but we care for our little problems, which in comparison to how big He is, our problems are really little. He goes on, look at verse 13. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His counselor has taught Him? I think if we're all honest, I would say that we've all tried to. I think we all tried to, you know, that we tried to direct the spirit of the Lord or to counsel God on, on what he should or shouldn't be doing. Lord, I figured it all out. If you just do this and this, it's going to be great. God, Tom, <laughs> really? No. Lord, yeah, Lord, if you just give me that new car, I can bring people to church. It's a great plan. Or, or Lord, if you give me that new bigger house, we'll have a Bible study in the home. Lord, Lord, this is the plan. This is how it's going to work. It's going to be great. And we have this propensity in our lives to, to, to try to be the Lord's counselor. Listen, I, for one, am very, very thankful that the Lord hasn't taken my counsel many, many times because my life would be a horrible mess if he did. 
But Isaiah, he says in verse 14, look at it. He says, With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Certainly not me, certainly not you. Again, thankful so many cases God hasn't listened to me because his ways are so much better. So as we realize the, the greatness and the vastness of our God, the power and the wisdom of God, how foolish for us to think that we know best. We don't. I mean, what, what's best for me is what God deems it's best for me, not what I think. And he's going to work it out perfectly and completely in my life. He goes on, look at verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are a drop in a bucket and are counted as a small dust in the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor is be sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. So at that time, Lord was saying, all these nations that were so great, Babylon, Assyria, they, oh, we're going to attack you, we're going to do this and all that. God said, man, they're nothing. All these nations are, are, are a drop in the bucket to God, is what he says in verse 15. Now you know where they're saying a drop in the bucket came from. But I think in our day, in our age, you know, what we're hearing of nation rising up against nations and their wars and rumors of wars and how we're looking at the strengths of the nations. Oh, you know, Russia's got this military capability and North Korea, well, they can do this or, or they can do that. Or Iran, maybe they have this power. But then we say, well, well, they're no match for the United States, which, which, which is all true. But to God, to God, they're nothing. We're nothing. Not even a bucket full, but it's just a tiny drop that remains in the bucket after you thought it's been completely emptied. And then he says, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor is be sufficient for a burnt offering. Think of all the cedared trees in Lebanon as being not enough to use for the burnt offerings to the Lord. There's nowhere near enough animals in the vast forest to be enough to adequately worship all the Lord that's due His name, the worship that's due His name. You can burn the whole world and it's still not enough to, to, to worship the Lord and all this do His name. He goes on in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a con- contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Here Isaiah is contrasting God to idols. And he says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare to him? And he makes some, some image out of wood, put some gold over it, even find the best tree, the most skillful worker to make it. Still, it's nothing compared to the true and living God. You couldn't create an image to even come close to our God. You know, I, I think it's, it, it's true for Jesus as well. I look around, I see, see pictures that people make uh, of what they think Jesus looked like. And, and it really kind of blows me away. You know, you have the, the blonde surfer Jesus. You know, he's got Jesus halfway, you know, the hair halfway down his, his back, and he's got this little bit of a tan. Or are they making this anemic-looking, you know, sort of scrawny, shrunken little guy? And I think, man, that's not my Jesus. That's not what my Jesus looked like. First of all, I doubt that he had long, flowing blonde hair. Being Semitic, his hair was probably very dark, along with his dark skin. I'll tell you another thing, he was probably extremely built. He was strong. He was strong enough to turn tables over in the temple, you know, uh, and, and, and drive the money changers out. And then later on to be able to pick up one of those huge crosses and drag it as far as he had after his back shredded open with the Roman whip 39 times. It's no wonder Pilate looked at him after that and said, behold, the man. 
But the problem is, many people want to make images and statues and something they can point to and say, that's my God. But you can't. There's nothing comparable to our God. What likeness will you compare to Him? None. And then Isaiah explains why you can't create a likeness of our God. Look at verse 21 and 22. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. I mean, how can you describe a God who sits above the circle of the earth? You can't. It's interesting that we read in verse 22 that the earth is a circle. I mean, isn't that, I mean, it's not flat. Had, had, you know, early guys read that verse that they would understand. In fact, I, I read that Christopher Columbus, a Christian, knew that Isaiah 40:22 said the earth was a circle and he wasn't buying into the fact that the earth was flat. He was mocked and, and thought, and they thought for sure he was going to fall off the edge of the earth if he sailed too far. Listen, God's word is always true. I think of uh, Job 26, verse 4, we read it that says that the Lord hangs the earth on, on nothing. It says it right there. Throughout history, there's been other explanations about the phenomenon of our, of our planet. African cultures uh, thought the earth sat on the back of a huge tortoise. Hindu cultures thought it was held on the back of an elephant. The Greeks thought it was held on the shoulders of Atlas. Uh, I mean, just the strange thoughts that people have when they don't consider the word of God and what God's word says. Again, he who sits above the circle of the earth, and it's just showing the greatness of our God. Then it says, its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. I mean, I think we're more like ants. I mean, the grasshoppers are a little bit big for what we are compared to our big God. But, but you know, I think of Numbers chapter 13. Remember when the, the people of Israel didn't initially enter the promised land? It says that they felt like grasshoppers in the eyes of the people who lived there. Here, God is saying, you might be a grasshopper in their sight, but, but they're grasshoppers in my sight. I mean, the same is still true today. Whoever or whatever stands against you is as a grasshopper in God's sight. Therefore, rather than worrying about the situation, believe that your Father loves you and He's going to see you through. Look at verse 23 through 25 now. It says, He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall they stock take root in the earth. When you will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I equal, says the Holy One? Again, Isaiah is just showing the greatness of God. He brings princes to nothing, judges to, to useless. And then he poses that question again. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? I mean, what are you going to compare God to? What kind of standard would you use in trying to compare with God? Who is equal to compare with Him? There's none. There's not even a basis for comparison. Look at verse 26. It says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. He says, Lift up your eyes and just look at the stars in the sky. Reminds me of a story about one lovely moonlit night. A young girl and her grandmother went for a walk. The sky was magnificent. Uh, magnificent, as grandmother named individual stars and constellations, the granddaughter exclaimed, Grandma, if the bottom side of heaven is this beautiful, just think how wonderful the other side must be. I like that. 
Sir Isaac Newton said, This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets can only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as the Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God. Lift up your eyes and just look at the stars in the sky. Who do you think created them? Who do you think knows exactly how many they are? And God knows each one by name. Only God. I mean, think about our own Milky Way galaxy. It numbers somewhere around 100 billion stars, many of them brighter than the sun. Yet one quasar is 200 times as bright as the entire Milky Way galaxy. According to Space.com, the Hubble telescope so far has discovered 100 billion galaxies. So if there's 100 billion stars in the Milky Way and uh, 100 billion galaxies uh, like the Milky Way, bare minimum, then they say that the number is somewhere around 10 sextillion. That's one with 36 zeros after it. And those are the only ones that scientists say that, that they can account for. We know there's billions and billions and billions more. And yet, the Word says our, our great God knows exactly how many they are, and He's got a name for each one of them. You know, we don't give simple names to stars. So, oh yeah, there's Bill, there's Ted, there's Harry. You know, we give names like Sirius and Antares and Canopus and, you know. The Lord knows each one by name. Not one is missing, He says. Listen, I think that a God can, can name each one, can be trusted. He knows our deepest needs. He knows what's going on in our lives. He, you can rely on Him to take care of you. So when Jesus said in John six thirty seven, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the ones who come to me I will by no means cast out, you can believe it. No one after coming to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ will be missing when we get to heaven. We're all going to be there if you surrendered your life to Him, God isn't going to go, now what did I do with Tom? Okay, Tom, oh, oops, you know, I, I don't know where to put him. We're all going to be there. He goes on, look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, is understandable, his understanding is unsearchable. Listen, God is omnipresent. And Isaiah is saying to the people, you're only fooling yourself if you think you can hide anything from God. Our God doesn't take naps. He doesn't pass out from exhaustion. He doesn't grow weary. Psalm 121, verse 2 through 4 tells us, My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall never slumber or never sleep. Do you love that? Verse 29, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. I mean, how beautiful that is, that the same great, amazing God who created this entire universe, the vastness of it, you know, one with 36 zeros after that, will strengthen little old me, little old you, in my weaknesses, in our weaknesses, in our times of trouble. He strengthens us. He comforts us. Verse 30 says, even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fail. Those that don't know the Lord, man, it doesn't matter how strong you are. <laughs> if you're in your primary of the youth, you can still fail. But, and thank God for this but, look at verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Don't you just love that verse? 
What a great verse to end with tonight. I mean, many pictures with eagles soaring over mountain ranges have been made with this verse on it. I know I have one in my office. What's interesting is many commentators, like in verse 31, to three stages of the Christian uh, walk. Stage one, the young Christian shall mount up as an eagle. Stage two, the adult Christian shall run. And stage three, the mature Christian shall walk. That reminded me of a preacher from down south who preached one Sunday. Brethren, this church needs to walk. And one of the deacons said, Amen. He continued, Brethren, this church needs to run. And the deacon said, Hallelujah. Then he said, Brethren, this church needs to fly. And the deacon said, Amen and Hallelujah. Then the minister said, Well, it's going to cost some money to make the church fly. To this, the deacon replied, Let her walk, brother. Let her walk. Listen, regardless of who you are, if you're going to move with God through this earth, it's going to cost us something. It may be difficult at times, but our God is amazing. Not like anything on this earth. He'll give you strength, he'll give you comfort and direction with whatever you may be going through. If you need strength to walk, he'll give it to you. If you need strength to run, he's got that for you. If you need strength to fly, he's got that for you also. This is just an amazing chapter revealing the comfort of our God as Creator, as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King, as our God. I'm excited for the next chapters as we get into them. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night tonight, Lord, and the many uh, encouraging words that we've heard tonight, Lord God. When we see how great you are, magnificent you are, how you've created this universe of ours. You know each star by name. You know the, 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 the seas, Lord, in the palm of your hand, the, the span of your hand, Lord. You, you've held them together. You hold the universe in your hand. Yet you come down to this earth, Lord, and you care about us little grasshoppers. Really, ants, Lord, each thing that's going on in our life personally, Lord. We have that personal commitment with you in our lives. That just blows our mind that you love us that much. But we recognize it's all because of your son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, died on the cross for us to take away every sin we've ever committed. Lord, thank you that we could be, we sit here this evening, Lord, forgiven people, cleansed people, no longer uh, burdened with the sin and the guilt of our past, but set free in you. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you, Lord, that your return is soon and we eagerly wait for it and look for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.